You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and this is episode three. Welcome again to another edition of Conversations in Speech Pathology. Again, I'm your host, Jeff Steppen, and you can visit my website at www.conversationsinspeech.com. You'll note it's not Conversations in Speech Pathology. That's the title of the podcast itself, but the website address is www.conversationsinspeech. I wanted to make it on the shorter side, if possible. Uh, there you'll find, again, uh, show notes, links, and uh, comments uh, for the website that I've developed thus far. I wanted to start this episode with just a few housekeeping issues. Um, The numbers so far for the first two podcasts, I just want to update you. I've had, um, I looked this morning, I think it was 155 downloads, which to me is pretty cool considering that I really haven't um, promoted the podcast uh, all that much. And, uh, you know, I hope those numbers grow and I, I hope people become interested in the show and really start to uh, want to contribute and, and get involved in building something with me. Um, anyway, so like I, I want to encourage you all, again, please feel free to contact me if you have any ideas for shows, um, something you want to chime in about. Uh, again, www.conversationsandspeech.com, and that's the last time I'll say that this uh, for the intro. Um, and uh, a couple of interesting notes, that uh, theories that I have. So, um, the question I first had, I guess, with people downloading the podcast was, um, how, how were people uh, coming about this podcast? How did people find this out? And one of the theories that I have, just based on two comments on the webpage so far, two of the comments came from uh, graduate students. And if you go to the iTunes store and you just type in uh, speech pathology and look in the podcast section, like I said in the intro, you're really not going to find a whole lot. But one thing you will find is a link to um, a guy who does... Uh, Praxis exam uh, preparatory podcasts. I guess that's the best way to put it. And so, if you wanted to brush up, if you're a grad student and you're graduating soon, you want to brush up on, I don't know, voice issues or uh, phonology, there, that's uh, one source. And so, uh, like I said, I've had two graduate students uh, contact me uh, you know, positively about the podcast. And I'm guessing, I didn't ask them directly, but I'm guessing that's uh, probably how they found me is by typing in speech pathology, looking for the praxis and send, and then seeing um, either the related search or whatever and seeing my name in our, my podcast logo. So, um, hey, whatever, whatever uh, method, right? Happy to have the listeners. Another thing is you'll notice my, pe- my website is pretty bare bones right now. I suppose as the show grows, uh, I'll try to uh, engineer that a little bit better. Uh, not a web designer by background, but um, it's a pretty... Uh, simple WordPress uh, theme for those of you familiar with uh, web design. Um, And the last thing is uh, social media. I'm not tied into any of that stuff yet. You won't find a Facebook page, uh, Google Plus, Tumblr, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Right now, it's just the podcast. Uh, My core uh, mission was to get just simply get a podcast out, uh, build a product here. I should say product. I'm not selling anything, (laughs) but uh, get some episodes out, hopefully provide something that people are interested in and that stuff can all come later if uh if there's interest in it but right now i just really wanted to provide you know good content okay so with that i want to talk to you about today's guest 
Um, her name is Dr. Pat Van Slyke. She was actually a professor of mine when I was a graduate student, which was when I started graduate school back in 1996. And at the time, uh, well, actually, uh, Pat Van Slyke was just, uh, I think she was in the process of receiving, uh, or say, earning her doctorate. And she did right as uh, right around the time I graduated, I believe, maybe a I think into my first or second year. I can't remember when exactly it happened. At any rate, um, these days, so I, I went to graduate school, by the way, at Rush University in Chicago. And uh, she taught all the uh, child-based uh, courses there. So articulation, phonology, language disorders. I can't remember. Clinical methods, I think. She, she taught part of that. Anyway, um, these days she is professor at National Lewis University. She's associate professor there and chair of the Department of Diversity and Learning and Teaching. Her uh, big passions these days, um, literacy and language, the connection. If you go to her webpage at www.patvanslyke.com, I'll go ahead and link that on my, uh, on my show page. You can read a more in-depth bio of her. And uh, she consults uh, with school districts, uh, presents on the topic of response to intervention, RTI, which is going to be our topic for today. And just before I get into this interview, I'll explain to you a little bit about why I chose uh, uh, the top topic of RTI. You know, a lot of the early topics for this podcast are going to be driven mostly by my interests, <laughs> because, um, you know, until I hear an interest from listeners, I'm just going to go with what, with what I, either what I know or what I'm interested in or what I want to know more about. Um, if you remember from the first episode, I don't work, uh, none of the students on my caseload are in the RTI system, uh, simply because they all have IEPs. I work in a self-contained program. Uh, but I do work in a pretty, fairly large school district. And, um, I think I say in this, uh, interview with Dr. Van Slyke that you never know where the winds, uh, will take you. And, um, I try to keep up with things that are going on in the schools. Um, you know, whether that be the common core or RTI or, the other hot topics these days. And so I just simply wanted to learn more uh, about the process. And more importantly, how it uh, applies to the speech language pathologist working in the school. So if I sound slightly green about the whole uh, history and notion of RTI, it's because I, you know, for the most part, I am. I, I went into, this, into, the, into the interview uh, understanding the basics of RTI, the different tiers, and the purpose of it. But I wasn't as keyed in as to the uh, history and and the rollout of the process and the specific challenges, I guess, that school districts have in uh, implementing a good RTI program. I should let you know, by the way, that we begin the interview by talking about the uh, horrible winter uh, we've experiencing in Chicago. And a lot of you probably have, if you live in the northern half of the U.S., uh, Plain States, Midwest, Northeast, it's just been uh, pretty punishing. And uh, the day I interviewed uh, Dr. Pat Van Slyke, actually, I, I work in a school uh, district, as you all know, and I was actually off for uh, two days in a row. We've now missed uh, four days uh, this winter because of the uh, just unseasonably cold weather. And so that's where we're starting uh, this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into the interview. Hope you enjoy it. And I said to her, I said, if you found out if somehow they made this prediction that Chicago winters <laughs> were going to be like this from now on, would you stay here? She said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. Yes, I do understand that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you now? Did you go to work today? Um, actually, the university was closed, but I worked yeah. from home. So, okay. um, yeah, I I did work today. 
Okay. Um, so anyway, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about RTI today. And uh, RTI, you know, I've told this, uh, I think, in my introductory episode that RTI is not something that I necessarily interact with on a day-to-day basis. Even though I work in the schools, I work in an educational life skills program. All the kids on my caseload are in IEPs right now. So, But, you know, being in the schools, and I have uh, I work for a fairly large district in Des Plaines, and, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues, I'm always hearing concerns and stories, and I try to keep up with uh, RTI and the, you know, ASHA leader and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've, I, you know, actually had to sit down with uh, the school psychologist, uh, not about RTI, but I started asking her a bunch of questions early in the year, because I want to know, because... You know, talking to uh, administration, you know, who I work with, you know, my job could change one day. All of a sudden, I could be, you know, maybe I'll have a mixture, mix of sure. a caseload. So right. I wanted to kind of get a better understanding uh, for myself and for the listeners as to, A, um, you know, kind of the history of RTI, how long it's been around and, you know, kind of what it looks like in the schools today. So I thought maybe a good place to start is if you can kind of give us a rundown of uh, where RTI came from. Okay, Great. Well, response to intervention, RTI as it's called, and now I understand there's a new term that they use and it's called multi-system um, tiers. And it actually came from the IDEA, the Individual Disabilities Educational Act of 2004 reauthorization. And prior to that, we had always used a discrepancy model as the only way that we could identify children who were challenged with any kind of learning needs. And it said that in order to be able to qualify a child for services, they had to meet this discrepancy model, this discrepancy between their cognitive abilities, skills, and their achievement. And so what RTI came about in 2004 was it said that, you know what, we can now put into practice, starting at the very level of kindergarten, a multi-tiered system, three tiers, one, two, and three, basically, that will avoid using this wait-to-fail model of discrepancy model, and that we can identify children at a very young age of kindergarten through a universal screening process at the, at the um, tier one model, level and we can then identify usually there's about 20% of those children who will not be able to meet the benchmarks even after they've had some instruction for about 6 to 8 weeks so then those children would move to a tier 2 and tier 2 is a very small group type of instruction geared specifically to the needs and similar needs for children within the same group. And again, you're going to do progress monitoring. It's going to be an instructive level of geared focus right to exactly what their needs are. And then after that period of time, and if you have children who are still not able to meet the benchmarks, then those children might go to what we would call a pre-special ed or a tier three. The thing about RTI is that it's very interesting in that There really isn't a set of prescribed regulations and policies for response to intervention. The law actually just says, you know, here's a way that you can use different kinds of screenings and different kinds of group work in order to identify students with learning challenges and you don't have to use a discrepancy model. It does not say that 
it's the only thing you can use, but it says there's an alternative. So it's really an important first step, I think, in our movement towards um, a less regulated and a less stringent uh, way of identifying children. And it gives us the opportunity to find those kids much earlier and to provide services and to hopefully move them in a level that will keep them in the regular educational program and not have to move them to special ed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first question that pops up, you know, in my head, you know, from a speech pathologist's point of view and going sure. to, you know, going to my speech department meetings with the RTI stuff coming up is, okay, so the first question I would have is, how, how fine or discreet of a skill um, can we talk about as being something that's RTI um, addressable? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And, you know, when you look at a kindergarten level child, who may have some, let's just say, articulation issues, okay? Uh, there are a lot of districts out there today that say, well, you know what, if he's not, he or she's not really having a great deal of difficulty and it doesn't interfere with the educational um, aspect for this child, we're not going to see this child till they're, to, till they're second grade. And so, as you and I both know, as speech-language pathologists, by the time you get to second grade and we're at, you know, age seven, maybe eight, if you're still having difficulty producing, you know, Fs and THs and Ls and things like that, let alone an S or an R, you really are missing some very important time. So I think that from the standpoint of articulation with RTI, that you can meet the needs in small groups after you've done this universal screening and perhaps look at a child who's just slightly delayed in articulation certainly not with a disorder in terms of phonology or something like that. And you can provide a service for them that will perhaps move them to the point that they will be able to have correct articulation and not have to have speech therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I hear, you know, uh, from the other, you know, SLPs uh, in my district, yeah, definitely that's the concern that sometimes the uh, the question is, uh, is this particular sound uh, relevant? Is how how exactly. much is it impacting that educational environment? Exactly. Um, and then the other concern that I hear all the time is how long to keep a kid uh, in the RTI you know system before moving them ultimately right. into an IEP. That's right. the other big one. Right. Well, in general, um, what the the law says in terms of how long you do the work in tier one, universal screening would be like, say, in kindergarten, and we go in and we do a a speech articulation screening. And then you might provide services once or twice a week. But it's something that you have to do for the whole class, because that's what universal screening and that's what tier one is. It has to be for the whole group. So you might do that for six to eight weeks. And then you would do a quick Uh, post-testing, and you would see, okay, we did this, and it didn't really improve this particular group of children, so they seem to be mildly stimulable, so let's move them to Tier 2. So then Tier 2 might be another six to eight weeks. Um, I think there's some discrepancy, and this is one of the problems with RTI, is that the rules and the regulations are not really written in formal policy. So it's interpreted by various different districts in various different ways. And of course, you know, as you well know, you know, that's that's an issue, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not like an IEP, and it's like, here's the rules, here's the regs, and here's how you do it. 
Um, so it's very much less left up to the interpretation of who's at the head of the helm running the RTI program within the district. Mm-hmm. But typically, if you were then in a level two of RTI, you might then see this child for six to eight weeks. It would be focused stimulation, and you would be working with them for another six to eight weeks. You know, when I go to schools and I do consults and I look at the RTI programs, not just in articulation and some mild language challenges, but in other areas, especially in literacy and math, You know, I think the question becomes, um, at the end of level two, is this a child who could benefit from, quote unquote, one more little try at six to eight weeks? And or is this a child that we need to move to tier three and we need to make that referral to special education, i.e. for speech pathology services? Mm -hmm. So that's going to become more of an individual decision based on what the team members might have to say about that. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's interesting that uh, when you're giving the introduction about RTI and talking about, you know, the lack of set guidelines, like it's not as, uh, right. it's not as black and white as an IEP. No. And I'm guessing, you know, thinking about RTI and listening to, uh, you know, the various uh, folks in my district, it seems like if I were to guess what the biggest problem with RTI, it's just that. The fact that there is no right. set roadmap and it's so hard to, uh, I think people kind of struggle as far as determining the best roadmap and it you know, varies student to student. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think there's also a great deal of um, difficulty when it comes to the administration because not all administrations are going to interpret the response to intervention system as others do. So you get even across districts and certainly across various districts within one state and a lot of differences between how RTI should look, how it does look. And as a matter of fact, it's very interesting as I've gone across the country and done a variety of different presentations on RTI, I always get the question, Dr. Van Slyke, you know, we have students that are in RTI and they're also in an IEP and so they're getting both services. Is this right? Well, basically, according to the law, no, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. A student is either on an individual educational plan and or if they're not on an IEP and they haven't been identified and processed and all that plan put in place, then they would be a student, if they were struggling, who, who might be eligible for an RTI program, but certainly not both. And then the other thing that I often get is, um, well, we have students and we keep them in our RTI program for two years. And, you know, if you really look at what the law says and the progress monitoring that they have set forth, which is the very little bit of it, is that, you know, it's not meant to be a long-term issue. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a very explicit short-term intervention. Six to eight weeks universal screening tier one, six to eight weeks tier two, maybe a tier two second time around, and then we're looking at, you know, moving towards that referral for special education. So it's just rather interesting across the country how Various districts do interpret it, how it's implemented, and is it's just an interesting. Uh, I think that we need a lot of regs and policies on this to really make it clear. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. 
And you know, you made me think about uh, talking to uh, well, actually a colleague of mine, a school psychologist. He's now moved on to a doctoral program, but um, his I remember one of his concerns was always that not just that uh, kids would be in the R- necessarily the RTI system too long, but he was always concerned about the data that was being taken. Exactly. Right, right. I think the bottom line, as I recall, in some of the literature that I've read on RTI is that you have to have, um, in tier two, I believe it's a minimum of 10 to 15 data points. So if you think about that over a period of six to eight weeks, then you're talking about, you know, at least two data points probably per week. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense to me. You know, let's say you were seeing the child, you know, three times a week. So two of those times you would take the data. And then you've got at least somewhere between 10 and 15 data points that you can look at. And what you're obviously looking for is that slope that's going to go slightly upward, certainly not flat and definitely not downward. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so okay, so RTI has been around roughly. We're looking at about ten years now, right? Yeah, since two thousand four, right? Okay, so I would have to at least one would have to believe that moving past that discrepancy model, that RTI is, has been mostly a positive thing over the last ten years. Would you say that's the case? As data shown, uh... yeah, I I would say that what I've read and the various different districts that I've talked to is that. Most people really like the response to intervention. Now, I believe that um, even though it was reauthorized by IDEA in 2004, it actually didn't start being implemented across the nation in, a, in various states for quite some time. I think mm-hmm. Illinois was mandated that they had to have an all districts had to have an RTI plan in place, either 2012 or 2013. I'm not quite sure which it was. I think it might have been 2012. So... Even though it was in the law and it said you could use it as opposed to using discrepancy model, it didn't really kick in and take off for quite some time. Um, I would say definitely now in the last three to four, maybe five years, that there's hardly any state that you can go to that isn't using some form of RTI in some of their districts. Um, and now as far as you know, the spe- getting back to the speech pathologist and RTI... Yeah. It's, right. I, I get the sense that RTI has definitely shaken up the service delivery model mm-hmm. uh, for SLPs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I get the sense that you know, at least in my district, that there is, uh, you know, there's definitely a shift afoot. And mm-hmm. if maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've seen uh, in the schools in, in that sense. Sure. Sure. Well, um, ASHA actually came out with a uh, statement on the position for SLPs and their um, sort of responsibilities in the response to intervention programs within districts. And so one of the things that they, they, inst- they really felt was important is that we as speech-language pathologists are an integral part of that team. And there's all kinds of different ways to do that. First of all, if you are within the system of your district that's going to use RTI and you really understand how RTI works, it would be great if you as the SLP could get in on the groundwork of shaping that RTI program. How does this look? What kind of universal screenings will we use? What kind of progress monitoring will we use? You know, how will we then do our service delivery model? And so 
the classroom teacher is really quite able to give the universal screenings. But I think where the speech pathologist comes into play is that she's in there helping, she or he, is in there helping the teacher look at the data from the universal screening and say, hey, look, here's a pattern, here's this and here's that, especially when you look into the literacy areas because we as speech-language pathologists really do understand literacy. Um, we're far more than just, you know, articulation specialists as we used to be known. Right. So that's one, that's one way. A second way certainly is that, you know, as a part of Tier 2, we can be a part of the focus stimulation group for obviously for articulation, obviously for language, but also for literacy. And there's a lot of kids that are, you know, in that kindergarten level, that first grade level who are struggling with phonological awareness. Who better than the speech language pathologist to do phonological awareness and focus stimulation groups in tier two? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that it's also a matter of creativity in your service delivery model. You know, it's not like the old days where, you know, it was, you know, two kids to a group and you see maybe, you know, 25 kids in a day and your caseload is really like 95, you know? Yeah. But there's a lot of different ways to do this. And I think that the speech pathologist can also be a very important instrumental person in not only deciding what universal screenings will be used for, you know, articulation, language, and literacy, but also the person that helps to drive the kinds of evidence-based practice that we need to use in terms of providing services in Tier 2. I think that, you know, notwithstanding RTI, I know that even in my program, uh, I think one of the biggest challenges has been trying to re-engineer exactly how I provide services. Right. Everybody's got large caseloads. And I think especially, right. I really think that RTI, you know, has, has forced people to kind of take a second look and, mm-hmm. and how, they, how they do this. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a lot of different creative models out there. A lot of different ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you, so where do you think RTI is going? And what, what do you think it's going to look like in, you know, 10, 15 years from now? Well, I think it's here to stay. Okay. And I think that's a very good thing. Um, I do believe that within the next 10 to 15 years, we will see another reauthorization of IDEA. Uh, you know, it, it went from 97 to 2004. Well, we're now at 2014. So I understand sort of in the uh, backroom <laughs> talks that there is a lot of work going on in terms of writing the regulations and the policies. And that's really what we need. And if we can come up with uh, regulations and very explicit policies that provide uniformity from district to district as to how it is that we can best implement RTI. And if we can take that data that we have, that a lot of these people, especially Vanderbilt University, has been very, very big in in working in this area. Mm-hmm. And if we can take that data and put it into practice as, okay, here are three or four different ways that RTI can be regulated, and here's some policies that every district has to follow. Mm 
You know, there's even a whole sector on there about, you know, when do you get the parents involved in RTI? And there's a lot of different ways that districts do that. And when I give my presentations, I always tell people, I say, you know, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, you need to let parents know that you have an RTI program in your school. You need to let them know what that RTI program looks like, who is in that RTI program, and how it is that their child may or may not qualify for RTI services. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to come from the very beginning. But you got to get administrative support, and that's part of the problem sometimes. Yeah. Now, just uh, curious, I know you consult to a lot of different school districts. Uh, Can you think of the number one issue that uh, school districts come to you with that they want you to solve or help help them with? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, there are two things that, that I always hear. And number one is time. How do we create time within our already crazy jam-packed schedule from the time those kids walk through the door till the time they leave? How do we create the time to provide the services that are needed for RTI? And the second one is usually revolves around okay, how do we get the money to do this? Mm. And I think that it's not as much about the money because there are some federal funding. uh, There is federal funding that is in place. It's not a great deal, but there is some that's in place for RTI. And I think the most important issue and one that affects all of us as a team is that creativity of the time. How do we create the time in our day? One of the things that I've seen that's been successful in a lot of different school districts is that they have a 90-minute block the first 90 minutes of the, of the day. Okay. And, and within that block period of time, that's when RTI happens in the first 90 minutes. So it could be RTI in literacy, RTI in math, RTI in social, emotional, and behavioral disorders, which is kind of where it all started. Mm-hmm. And it could be and or RTI with the speech-language pathologist with articulation and or language. And it's that first 90-minute block. And then some districts have gone to the, the the way they get this 90-minute block is they will shorten the lunch period by just a little bit. Mm-hmm. They'll lengthen the school day by maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And they'll maybe shorten something else a little bit, lengthen something else. So it's really a matter of flexibility and creativity and team support for this to work. I suppose it would make more sense to do that block model depending you know, on the number of students in any given classroom right. know, in need of RTI, right? Right, absolutely, okay. absolutely. And then you know, you're looking at this block schedule, so maybe it's a blocking of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. Mm-hmm. And it's that those classrooms that have that 90-minute first part of the day block. Mm-hmm. Interesting. On the whole, RTI definitely sounds like a, you know, compared to the discrepancy model, sounds like a the positive way to go. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure it's going to take on different forms as the years go on. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing about it is that, you know, in our old discrepancy model, you know, okay, we had a child in kindergarten who struggled. We had a child in first grade who struggled. So we just kind of moved them on. But it was mid-second grade before we said, yikes. This child really is not meeting the benchmarks, and we need to make a referral. So it was the beginning of third grade before 
we got this student the services yeah. and the specialized instruction that they need. Well, you've missed K-1 and 2, three of the most primitive years that a child needs to learn pre-language, pre-literacy, literacy skills, and all the other things that go into that. So with RTI, I think it gives these kids the opportunity to be able to see if they can get it from focus stimulation. Are they just slightly delayed or do they really, 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 truly have a learning challenge? But it helps us to know this when they're in kindergarten and by the end of kindergarten, we're moving forward at the beginning of first grade, perhaps, as opposed to the beginning of third grade. And in my book, that's a huge, huge service to helping our children and to seeing that those that struggle can move forward in a, in a really reasonably good fashion. You know, you actually brought up something when you were talking about waiting, you know, discovering in second or third grade that there's a problem. I think of, you know, I, I, because I've worked in private practice, I saw, I saw something happen, you know, kind of over and over again. Sure. Right? I would start working with a kid. He was a late talker. Yep. Maybe, you know, especially for the kids who had no RTIC issues. Maybe right. he had a diagnosis at the age of four of SLI. Right. Goes to school, flies under the radar. Exactly. And then all of a sudden, second, third grade, the academic difficulties coming in. And, um, right. And I'm like, that learning disability didn't just pop up overnight. You know? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what's so interesting is that, you know, especially if a child is bright, really bright, you know, you can, you can work your way through kindergarten and first grade. But when you come to second grade, you've pretty much exhausted your sight word vocabulary, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And you have got to know the unsaid rules of phonological awareness and the unsaid rules of decoding. So, you know, these kids that are really, really bright and they're doing, you know, so-so kindergarten, first grade, and then they hit the stumbling block at second grade because, oh my gosh, he was reading, but he can't now. What really happened was, yeah, the old, the good old language challenge they had when they were three and four kicked in because it's still the language part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it's just now we have to use it differently, but we're so bright that we had all these sight words and it looked like we could read and Mm -hmm. we understood what was going on and we were bright. So we had great background knowledge and we could, you know, put it all together and comprehend. Uh Oh, now we have to, now we have to decode and we don't have those skills. So I absolutely agree with you 100% that that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is RTI going to catch those kids? So hopefully. <laughs> yes, I do believe that, that that system provides that opportunity for those children. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. Will it happen for all of them? You know, we don't know the answer to that. But I do believe that it provides the opportunity for many of those children to receive those services. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope so. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much. You are very welcome, Mr. Stepan. And I am so glad to have connected with you again. I Yeah, I'm glad too. And I uh, wish you much success and continued thank success you. in uh, all your endeavors. Keep thank in touch. Thank you very much. You, all right. Yes, you too. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Bye. Well, that about wraps it up for this interview. I want to thank Dr. Pat Van Slyke for taking the time to be on the show today. And uh, if you want to find out more about Dr. Pat Vanslyke, you can visit her at www.patvanslyke.com. Easy enough. 
I'm going to have a link to that show, to her uh, webpage on my, on my show page at www.conversationsandspeech.com. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this episode, please drop me a line. And otherwise, I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening.